0: Welcome to Succession Stories. I'm Lori Barkman. As an exit value planning and M&A advisor, I call myself the Business Transition Sherpa. This podcast guides entrepreneurs from transition to transaction, from building value in your business to letting go. What do I do when I'm not hosting a podcast? I work with owners to maximize business value with my firm, Small.Big, and as a certified mergers and acquisitions advisor with Stony Hill, I guide you through the complex process of selling your company. Tune into Succession Stories for weekly insights to reward your hard work and avoid succession regrets. Hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and sign up for our newsletter at SuccessionStories.com. Here's to your success. Is this the year to sell your company? Don't leave your exit to chance. Stony Hill Advisors works with entrepreneurs like you to get ready for what may be the biggest transaction of your life. Learn what your business is worth by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast. Gabriela Esturiz is a tech entrepreneur who sold two SaaS businesses to Fortune 500 companies. Gabby is one of the few women in STEM who has led bootstrap companies to successful exits. She was the founder and president of eBilling Hub, pioneer of electronic billing for law firms worldwide, and sold the company to Thomson Reuters in 2011. Just eight years later, Gabby sold her second tech company, Billafield Systems in 2019. After her last exit, Gabby launched the Fund XX, a venture fund investing in the next generation of women-led startups. I enjoyed my conversation with Gabby for many reasons. It's an impressive entrepreneurial story that hits on the core themes of this show, innovation, growth, and transition. We discussed how to find a market niche by solving customer pain points and innovating in a mature industry. We also talked about running an M&A bid process to generate multiple offers. Listen in to hear why the highest bidder is not always the best buyer for your company. Enjoy this episode with my guest, Gabby Esturis, Gabby Esturis, it is so lovely to have you on the show today. Welcome to Succession Stories.
1: Thank you for having me, Lori. I was looking forward to be with you today.
0: We are both in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. That's how we met. And I feel so fortunate to have met you recently at a conference. And when we were talking, it became very clear to me how impressive and successful you have been in your career and you're doing some very exciting things now that you are an investor. So you're a successful entrepreneur. I want to mention for the audience, you're one of a few women in STEM who has not only bootstrapped her company to a successful exit, you've done that twice. And that is amazing. I can't wait to hear your story. Why don't we dive in with your first company? which was called e-billing hub. And I think this is a super interesting story because you innovated in a space legal, right? That was a very mature and is a very mature industry, very well established. But this is an innovation story for legal tech and your first firm was e-billing hub. Can you give me the background? I'm so curious to learn more.
1: Yes, absolutely. So, a little bit of my background, Lori, I'm originally from Venezuela, uh, Caracas, and uh, I like to say I came to the United States for two years, 26 years ago, so (laughs) I I never left. left. uh, So, I had the opportunity to go to the University of Pittsburgh to do my master's degree in information science, and then I was hired by a large law firm, one of the largest law firms in insurance defense. And insurance defense is well known by the amount of cases. And we're talking about pretty much 20 years ago. And they have this need, this new thing, electronic billing, was a new thing. Basically, law firms, they needed to submit all their invoices through a channel. Imagine like an EDI, but for law firms. And uh, with some sort of uh, parameters and rules to get the bills, not in paper, but in electronic format. So it was very nascent, a concept. So part of the reason why they hired me is because at the time they have thousands and thousands of bills that needed to go electronically that someone was typing by hand in an electronic format. Right. So I kind of like I did a lot of research, uh, Laurie, and I couldn't find anything. In my background, I'm a software engineer, right? And just by the fact that you can write code, I call it, you get some superpowers, right? So I developed the solution, a little bit of my background, even though that I'm a software engineer, my specialty was in building in-house solutions. So I built this great solution for the law firm, adding a lot of value. And I always have this uh, entrepreneur in me since I was little. So I said, there is a commercial, there is a huge opportunity here that we need to go after. So I went to my boss, an amazing person, an amazing lawyer. He passed away and he was one of my greatest mentors. And he said, Gabby, absolutely, you can do this commercially and uh, as long as you don't leave the firm right? Because uh, do your thing, right? And, uh, you know, and and we want to retain you. So I was at the firm for 10 years. So that speaks a little bit of uh, the bond that we had and and the amazing place they were to work for. So a little bit of that. So we agreed that I could do something uh, commercial. There was a lot of trust, right? But I don't think to your point of innovation, I don't think they saw this as a real opportunity, right? It was a little bit like a, hey, Gabby wants to do this, right? We cannot afford to lose her, knock yourself out and have a passion project, right? So I didn't have any legalities around that, right? So, I mean, pretty much all the invention was myself, but we kind of like, when things were a little bit getting more serious, right? I went to my boss and said, I think, uh, you know, we need to, do this a little bit more serious and I said, yeah whatever right give us a little bit of a percentage right whatever it's fine right so they let me continue doing the company in grad school I met my business partner who came to be my husband of 20 years and because he knew he also was at PIT, He was a, a software engineer, neural networks at PIT. He knew how to build commercial software. So we kind of like a partner, we're going to build commercial software, right? We're going to take this. And my boss was, yes, that's fine, right? So a little bit of that, I continued to work in for the firm. And Danny left his job at the University of Pittsburgh. So that's how we started That
0: is incredible. I have to rewind on just a few things to just underscore. i worked in a law firm for a few years and I understand the dynamics. There's a lot of paper, right? Especially if this is, what year was this? This was? 2000, 2002. 2002. So we have to put ourselves back in time. There's a lot of paper moving. There's a lot of dollars at stake. What you did was you identified some pain points. If we look at the market need, your market, you had a captive audience for a pilot. You found product market fit in the law firm. You knew that there was pain. You knew that there was value. And then you created a product that, how many lawyers, roughly 100 plus? Probably
1: 150, 200. So you
0: could develop this product, commercialize the product kind of, right, within the law firm, prove it out and then <laughs> you were given the latitude to go commercialize the software platform that's amazing and i am admiring not only the law firms i guess willingness to support that for they they found it effective internally and they used it but then also to give you that latitude to run with it that took a lot of time i mean how did you how did you gabby <laughs> how, did, how did you do that you were managing a startup as well as maintaining your role at the law firm.
1: Yes, and totally. I was so passionate about, you know, solving this problem, building this company, right? And uh, I'm very passionate about the, the, the challenges that I had at a law firm, right? That I didn't feel it, Lori, uh, like it was a chore, right? I mean, I was doing what I love to do, right? You know, I think uh, when you're doing what you love, right? I mean, it's like a, you know, that saying that you're not working, right? And I felt that way. And even uh, fast forward 20 years after or more, I don't feel like uh, I was working. I was just having fun.
0: (laughs) It's incredible. (laughs) So when you spun it out and at some point you found it was time to sell, how did you know when it was time to sell and what were some of the deal dynamics with the, I think it sold to a, I'd call it a strategic buyer. I don't know if you ended up talking to financial buyers as well, but maybe you could just share a little bit about that time frame and what was happening.
1: Yeah. So it was a very interesting process. I mean, we were super young. This is 20 some years ago, right? And it ended up being that uh, one of the partners of the law firm, right? saw the opportunity and got for a little tiny piece, bought the interest the law firm right so the law firm kind of like uh went away right and we had a partner right that i was retiring in our at the beginning right we were super excited right it's gonna open this many opportunities right but our interests were not aligned i mean we were building something revolutionary and even lori i mean this is back in 2000 2002 the word SAS was not even invented yet Right. So remember that in 1999, 2000, Salesforce put the word SaaS. So we were calling our solution application service providers. Right. Right. Now we were the first SaaS for law firms. There was already SaaS for these civil inventors getting the bills, but we were the first one. Right. So I mean, we knew the size, the amount of the opportunity. Right. And you know, he was pretty much retiring we were starting pretty much our entrepreneurial journey. Once we kind of like a find this market fit and kind of like a, let me make a parenthesis. It took us about three to four years to make our 41st customers. And then after we partnered with Thomson Reuters, and, you know, there is some drama there uh, we got our next hundred customers in a year. I mean, wow. Totally a hot stick, right? And, you know, we gener- started generating a lot of revenue, right? We were already very, very profitable. So uh, our interests were not aligned. We wanted to keep it going. We wanted to catch out, right? And pretty much we sold too early, in my view. Really? But it was a, but it was a great uh, journey. We learned a lot, right? But yeah.
0: And it sold to a division of Thomson Reuters, is that correct?
1: It was a Thomson Reuters legal.
0: Okay. So we should probably just share it. I mean, Thomson Reuters in the legal space is the 800-pound gorilla. They exactly. are dominant and they have a lot of great software that law firms use. Yes. And you had a partnership with them. Was that a strategic move? Did you envision at some point that they might be the acquirer because of that partnership?
1: Yes. And that, yeah, Lori, but let me tell you a little bit about the journey to get there right? Because it sounds very romantic, right? Yeah, we did a partnership, right? They were interested and they bought us, right? A little bit of, we knew that we have something incredibly innovative. So I went to talk to the CIO of Thompson Rotors Legal to look for a partnership. And uh, he was so impressed with that. I pretty much, you know, very naive. I kind of like uh, spilled all this secret sauce, right? And, you know, you could see, right, that they were not figuring this problem out the way we did, right? So he said, yeah, Gabby, it's incredible what you're doing. I would love to partner with you, right? So, I mean, we were incredibly static, right? I mean, hey, this 800-pound gorilla, you know, is partnering with the little guys, right? Right. So then they went silent, Lori. It was, you know, two weeks they don't respond three weeks they don't respond, right? So I'm continuing, you know, my outreach, my outbound and nothing happens, right? So the next thing that we knew is when I saw a press release, they have launched a competitive product.
0: Oh, wow. <laughs> that is so incredible. We hear about that, you know, it's like the mythical unicorn animal and, and you hear this story and now Wow, you actually encountered that. Because I say to the people, what matters the most is the conversation, not necessarily when you're in the room, but when you leave the room, they're trying to figure out if they can replicate what you do.
1: That's exactly what it is, right? So, I mean, you gonna if they can figure it out, we can too, right? So, I mean, it's kind of like a playbook, Lori. So, they're going to try because, of course, they have pretty much unlimited resources and they have pretty much unlimited access to great talent, right? How come we're not going to do it? So what happened was, right, I was devastated, totally devastated. So my business partner, Danny said, you know what, Gabby, this is great. And it's great because if they're able to try to copy what we're doing, that it's a proof that they know how to do this, right? So what we need to do is we're going to beat them in the market because the playbook is they're going to try to do it, right? You start taking customers. They don't do it as nimble or as a innovative the way you can do it. And the, and the reason is it's a we make decisions faster, right? And we're only focused solving what problem while they have you know, these many departments, these many products, right? And, and, and so we have a, let's call it an unfair advantage, right? So we, we knew, Lori, that they, it was impossible for them to do something better than ours, right? Not with all the resources because we were thinking how to fix this problem day in and day out, right? So we said, okay, we're going to beat them in the market. And that's what happened, right? They paralyzed the market. Right, because when they announce it, okay, so we go, I mean, it's like a no the saying nobody got fired a uh, buying from IBM, it's right. exactly the same thing, right? Right. So, and right, we have uh, early adopters, right? People that understood that they couldn't innovate the way we did, right? And we start getting our lighthouse accounts, right? And that once we got, you know, another 40 out of their our portfolio their solution wasn't selling as great as it was right they say okay let's partner in one ah, okay yes.
0: so how much time did it take for them to launch
1: about six to a month in oh, so that yeah.
0: time it was also probably a good marketing for your company because they were validating that this was a worthy service and you were already established in the
1: market yes Yes. Yeah. And it was somewhere more mature, right? We had a library of uh, e templates, right? And uh, so, yeah, but, but it, it's a playbook, right? They're going to try to do it, right? You beat them in the market because now we earned the place, right, to partner with them because uh, there was no risk. The product was already in one of the largest uh, law firms in the world, right? And then, so we did an OEM not only once we came with Thomson Reuters, right? Adran and some other um, um, uh, Robert Tech, right? And some other practice management system came, came along, right? So we have these um, uh, incredibly uh, relationships, not with Thomson, but with the others, right? And what happened was uh, it opened the doors to really scale this. So, uh, I mean, it really, really worked. So, because even though that they say, we're gonna sell your product, right? And probably this is something for the audience. So when you go into a reseller or an OEM mode, right? I mean, it's great on the ability to open doors, but nobody's gonna sell your product. Nobody is gonna carry the message the way you do. So uh, yes, they were kind of like a, like a broker and uh, once they kind of like uh, generating the leads within the law firms, right? We will co- go and do the sale. So we needed to give him, you know, a high percentage. Typically, when you do these resellers and OEM, right? And also, we had a a sales force to deploy to maximize, right, the the, the success rate of our um, deals.
0: It was a lead generation arrangement, right. Because they were cross-selling, and then they got a percent of the sale. But right. your sales team were the ones who
1: would close. Yeah, and do the demos and do all and do the, the demos yeah, and everything. And the sales process. Yeah.
0: That's important, and did you have to spell all of that out in the partnership
1: agreement? Ah uh, no, no, no. we kind of like uh, learned that along the way. and okay. uh, the biggest lesson is uh, when you do this for seller uh, their 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 self force uh, they they have a bag of products, and your product is one in the bag, right? So how do you differentiate yourself right? So we kind of like I uh, became an advocate. In support of their sales force, basically. What and does that mean? Yeah, so for example, we will provide all the uh, messaging, right? All the marketing material, and we try to control the sales process, right? Uh, so we had a, a, a team just to do the demos uh, for them, so they they didn't have to learn it, and uh, and we were very passionate right? Which is hard to convey. So uh, we, we made the most out of uh, the relationship and it worked so well that we replicate the same with the other OEMs and partnerships that we did. So it wasn't exclusive. It wasn't exclusive. You,
0: okay. So that's also yeah. important. Yeah. And then at what point you mentioned earlier, you had a, another owner of the business. So it was yourself, your, your partner, your husband, and then there was another individual mm-hmm. who influenced a sale. Yes. Can you talk about that dynamic? Because I think that that's pretty interesting. Can you go a little bit deeper?
1: Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> and, and again, we learned a lot. One of the things that we learned it's that uh, we were so excited of doing this um, partnership with this partner, right? Or, or you know, uh, let's say, yeah, a partner that uh, we um, didn't go deep into the legalities of the arrangement, right? So our legal structure and our legal arrangement was was very, very loose, right? And uh, and then we were not savvy enough in terms of valuations and all that, right? So, you know, he was a savvy litigation lawyer, right? And um, so he had an advantage on negotiating, um, you know, to their favor. Right. So, um, yeah, we pretty much uh, were forced uh, to sell and, uh, you know, because of the, the, the lack of um, legal structure uh, to protect us.
0: Interesting. And so the lesson learned there for a founder who wants to bring on an investor would be to really make sure that they have an attorney who is thinking through their
1: interests. Yeah. Right. Because I mean, he was the one that we trusted to look for our interest and uh, you know, we were naive. Right. So yeah, you gotta, you gotta have someone that is going to look for your interest.
0: Who is your most important customer? The person who buys your business. Stony Hill Advisors works with owners to maximize the value when you're ready to sell. Get started today with a business valuation by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast. So time to sell, there was that dynamic. And how did you decide that you wanted to sell and who to sell to? Did you approach Thompson writers and say, look, we think we're a great fit. Are you interested in buying us? Did you go to Adderant and
1: others as well? Yeah. Also what happened was, right, because I mean, this solution was so unique and we were even surprised that even after five, six, seven years, right? No one uh, in the industry will come up with a competitive product. So, I mean, the market was ours, right? So uh, the, the um, clients were ours, right? And, uh, and, you know, it became the leading solution in the world for eBellin. So what happened was, right? Uh, Thomson Reuters uh, approaches other, uh, and pretty much everybody else Kind of like approaches uh, to go a little bit more into um, even Walter uh, Walter um You know, they, we we became an acquisition target in you know from the usual suspects uh, already. So we knew uh, you know any of these uh, publicly traded companies. Uh, it, it, we're going to be the, the target. in a little bit kind of like a, to summarize, right? So you have the idea, you innovate, they're going to try to do what you're doing because why not, right? You start getting the clients and they're going to buy you because I mean, they are limited in the ability that they have to innovate, right? For example, Lori, by the time that they will have to get a business case approved, right, we already had two versions of the software out, right? Right. And uh, so, and, and they know that, right? But you got to prove yourself, right? And then you become an acquisition target. And that's what we did.
0: Right, gotcha. And so, did you have any outside help at this point? Did you hire an intermediary to help, you know, you're still running your company day to day, and this is going to now take a lot of time, or did you run Point yourself?
1: It was a little bit kind of like, um, um, in, the first time around, it was incredibly flattering right, that you have, I mean, these uh, many uh, unsolicited offers, right, and uh, at that point, we didn't think about uh, an investment banker or or anything like that, right, I mean, this is something that we can do, right, we know a bunch of lawyers, and, uh, and, 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 and we will do, so yeah, it was a very uh, organic and ill Uh, Thought out, I would say.
0: (laughs) And how long did the process take from when you were getting the unsolicited offers to actually closing? Yeah,
1: it was uh, probably six to nine months.
0: Okay, pretty pretty long process. And can we talk about the deal itself? Because what were you doing in revenue roughly around that time?
1: We were uh, probably about six or seven.
0: Okay. And hundred percent SaaS recurring revenue business. So I'm assuming you sold at a multiple of revenue and you were negotiating multiples of revenue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay.
1: And uh, and, and every vertical has their own range uh, based on growth, right? Based on revenue, right? Uh, Based on EBITDA, right? And uh, and, and it's very consistent across the board uh, in, in this industry.
0: So you don't have to disclose what the multiple was, but sometimes in this industry, it's 10x. So it can be a pretty sizable number for companies and there's reasons to be above or below some of those benchmarks, of course. What were some of the main dynamics that you found in the negotiation? Did they want you to stay on and have an earnout? Was it the founders were out at closing? What were some of the things that were important to you or important to them?
1: Yeah, I mean, the first experience was very uh, difficult experience, right? And uh, we, it was, uh, there was litigation involved. So uh, part of the deal was, uh, I mean, we're not coming over uh, the, the transition. And uh, because of um, the conditions where, like I said, we were not aligned, right? Okay. And, uh, and we, we learned a lot, but yeah. So it was a different kind of like um, acquisition because it was, uh, there was litigation. Involved. There
0: was litigation between your firm and Thomson Reuters?
1: No, in our partner. Oh, 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 excuse me. Yes. Okay. Gotcha. Yes. Okay.
0: So how did you feel when the day came, the closing? Did you feel excitement? Were you sad? Because this is your baby. You'd been working with this oh, company. Yeah. You bootstrapped it with your husband. What were some of the emotions that you were feeling at the time?
1: It was not good. I mean, it was uh, kind of like a sense of uh, loss. But I mean, we knew, right, that uh, there is a better opportunity waiting for us, right? So this is our first attempt into this. Uh, We did that really well, and uh, let's take all our learnings, right, and do that better, and we did. So um, I think uh, in a way, uh, Laurie, I, I don't regret any of the experiences, other than have a better legal uh, framework around right but uh everything else right it really made us stronger right uh we learn a lot that probably otherwise we would have not uh, learned right and with the second company we pretty much engineer a company that we wanted to build and exit and uh and we were very deliberate and how uh, you know gross margins were going to be, uh, EBITDA margins growth, recurrent uh, revenue, right? And uh, in 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 yes, and every other metric, right? So, uh, for example, Lori, we understood that not every uh, revenue is good revenue. Right. So we favor, you know, going 90, 90 percent for the recurrent. Right. And that anything that was not recurrent, that was our uh, giveaway. Like uh, you can discount to the salespeople. You can discount the set of fee. Right. But we don't discount the recurrent revenue because we were evaluated on that. Right. So um, and we did it in about seven years, probably six, seven years. Uh, we grew that company, you know, to the point that we also became an acquisition target.
0: That's incredible. So this is Bellafield Systems now. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you took some a little bit of time off between the two startups, but not much. Wasn't it about a year or two years?
1: Yes. It was a year. Yes. Exactly. A year.
0: So you mm-hmm. weren't prevented from working in, in the legal tech space. You weren't prevented from creating another entity that was going to compete with Thomson
1: Reuters. Yeah. So I mean, we were not prevented to I mean, we were uh prevented. Uh, from creating a very similar solution in that space. So, um, so we couldn't create another e or the like. So Bellafield was timekeeping. It was timekeeping. And um, yes, which is kind of like, um, int- I mean, it's very interesting, right? Because all lawyers have been keeping time, right? Since the, you know, 1940s. Right. When the practice, you know, they realize and there is some history there. Right. So, I mean, there was nothing really innovative there. Right. So um, with the first company, we really created a market that didn't exist. Right. Right. Uh, This one, it was already there. Right. And a little bit on that, uh, Lori, when you create a market, uh, part of the challenge, what it took us a little bit longer is because we needed to educate the market to something that they never did, right? Kind of like using a SaaS solution, right? To send bills electronically as opposed to printing and sending out, right? This one, uh, you know, they were already used to that, but um, what we did is bring innovation in how they keep their time. So our first solution was the iPad. The iPad, when we came, um, we started seeing lawyers with iPads. We started seeing law firms buying iPads and they didn't know what to do with that, right? They were not apps. Uh, for iPads for little, right? So they could use like an notability, right? And they could use their email, right? So we said, right, um, you know, uh, there is a huge opportunity. So let's do only timekeeping for iPads. That's it. And that's how it started. And then, hey, can you do it for the iPhone? Yeah, I think we can, right? And then how about Android? And uh, so the vision always was, right? We want to own the lawyer experience when it comes for them to recover in time. And we built a whole company that just started kind of like an anywhere mobile solution, right? Then we became a desktop solution anywhere. And then we put compliance into that. So, but Lori, we have this vision. We knew that we wanted to get the market out of the mobility and take the kind of like a ride the wave of Apple and the innovation. But we knew that there was a very, A great vision behind it, right, in in a a much bigger game. So the compliance came about, right? So they could enter, let's say, um, an entry, a time entry, right? And immediately it was going to be validated, okay, the client is not going to pay for this, right? So immediately we had the intelligence, right, and the knowledge to, you know, make sure that everything that you put in was compliant. And we kind of like a pioneer uh, that as well.
0: That's awesome. So many times we hear about tech that is tech first, and then it tries to solve a pain point. You understood the market really well. You understood the, the law, the lawyer's workflow and where they had ups and downs on, in their day and, and no one enjoys timekeeping, let's face it. But it was the way we always do it. You found a pain point, you had market need, and you saw the opportunity to build and, and differentiate, which is which is really incredible. So in this space, you were able to do it twice, <laughs> one around the electronic billing and one around the timekeeping. What's fascinating also, because I did spend a little bit of time, not as many years as you, but I did send, spend a couple of years in a law firm and you know, lawyers are not really known for being super tech savvy. Now, of course, there's lots of people who are, so I'm not trying to generalize too much, but if we put ourselves back into this time period, also not typically early adopters of tech, right? Did you find that the training was something that you had to think about for the users and their use cases, or was it just so easy to use and pick up that the lawyers just ran with it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I love this question, right? Because I mean, it brings my passion out, right? So something that we learned by being kind of like insiders, it's uh, lawyers are incredibly smart. In uh, uh, incredibly skilled because they speak for a living, right? They, they make deals for a living, right? So, because of that, right, I always challenge uh, lawyers and accountants, right? Because I mean, we also had accountants uh, using our solution. They are not averse to technology, they just averse to technology that is not easy to use right? So our only thing is how can we make this incredibly simple for them? And that's how, you know, we grew so quickly. In 12 months, we already profitable. And, uh, you know, we already have like, a, I mean, 500 law firms uh, in two years, right? Wow. It, was, it was because it was so simple, not only for the lawyer to use, but so simple to deploy. Uh, that a large law firm of 500 lawyers, they could be up and running in a day and a half, which was so part of uh, our mantra, it's how we can uh, remove resistance from the lawyers adopting the technology and from the IT and uh, in, in operations department to implement it.
0: Makes a lot of sense. So a similar story here, because this company, the difference was you said you were building it to sell from the beginning. So there was probably a less of an emotional attachment to Bellafield than there was to your first company, I'm guessing. But here you in this situation, I think I heard you on an interview where you run another show and you talked about, I think it was the, the built to sell show that you did with John Warlow and you talked about hiring an advisor. And so now this is your second time around, you've been through it, why didn't you say, oh, we can do this ourselves again?
1: Yes, uh, that's an excellent question. So uh, in 2018, which was uh, one year prior uh, to the sale, uh, we got uh, three or four unsolicited um, offers and actually uh, term sheets and all that, right? And uh, I mean, the company was a lot bigger, Uh, there was a lot at stake, and, uh, and even that we were flattered, right? Um, so we kind of like decided, okay, let's entertain, let's look at that, right? Well, let's have some meetings. Um, <clears throat> but then we kind of like realized there is too much complexity here, right? So, you know, I was super focused growing the, you know, making our revenue goals, right? Growing the company. And uh, that we say, okay, uh, I'm not ready to entertain any of these, right? So in 2019, because I mean, we were growing a lot, right? Um, So I decided to get um, Investment Banker to help us do an equity growth round. So we were not even thinking about um, selling it um, 100% yet, right? And part of the strategy was, uh, so we have a lot of time, in, in energy and in everything invested in here that is wise to take some chips off the table so uh there was a lot of appetite from private equity uh to do that and uh we kind of like uh, met every metric that uh private equity that invest in sas right so we have the growth uh, we have the revenue we have the ebitda um and we had this magic number that anybody can Google, right? But it was basically the ratio between revenue and 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 marketing and sales. We became very, very uh attracted to private equities, right? So, but because we knew the potential, we said, okay, so let's go ahead and shop around and let's find the best deal. Uh, I believe, Lori, that without our advisors, our strategic advisors, and our investment banker, we would never would have done the deal that we did. Never, never. And you ended up selling the whole company. And we end up selling. So, and uh, I cannot treasure enough the value that our strategic team and our investment banker brought to the table. And they earned every penny. Oh, you know? that's
0: amazing. So did you go into this with an expectation of annual recurring revenue, multiple. And I know I said 10X earlier, and that's probably much higher given your first company and the time period. So I'm guessing that that's not a number we want to anchor to. But in this scenario, was it somewhere around that neighborhood? Was it less than that, that you thought you would sell for? We knew
1: uh, the number, right? Because I mean, we knew the market. We already had a prior experience. So what happened, Lori, was uh, because of um the, we closed the deal in forty-five days. Wow, that's fast! And, uh, and with Thanksgiving in between, right? Couple of things to say to that, right? So uh, I was extremely diligent and organized. Um, in in even. Everything was kind of like a by the book, Lori, in terms of, I mean, there are nothing obscure, right? There are no secondary set of books, right? There is no uh, messy operations, right? So it, it, it was a very um, uh, well oiled machine, right? So when the investment bankers comes, right? So they didn't have to deal with, uh, okay, there is no contract here, right? I mean, uh, the company, you know, there is no proper incorporation here or there, right? So they came in just to value. It took us about a month and a half or two to get the story together, uh, you know, to get the book together, And once they have the book together, right, they were very, very effective in identifying potential um, um, partners, right? And uh, I remember when the first round, we we got about 60 NDAs uh, interested in learning more. And then, you know, we started narrowing it down and we end up with 12 offers. That were worth worth considering. So, what our investment banker, um, um, Brock Mathias and VRA in Atlanta, he created a very honest uh, bidding um, situation. Yeah. Right. And uh, and one of the things that I was most impressed by, right? He will never influence my decision. Right. He just presented the fact. Right. So he never took any side. Right. But he educated me to make the best decision. Right. right. And I think with a, a great investment banker, uh, shows. Right. Because I mean, his job was supporting our organization, not making a decision for us.
0: Yes. And by having a bidding process, you were probably able to get them to play off each other in a way that as you said okay. it was it was honest that's part of the process when you have kind of an you know an auction let's call it where these different companies are interested in you and they're interested in getting a deal and, and it's a negotiation so there's always that room perhaps for them to raise their prices and and get to an, a point where you say you say yes so i'm guessing that that
1: worked out pretty <coughs> well for you that's a little bit of what happened right we 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 deal knew- that by getting the company to this with these KPIs, we knew the number, right? But thanks to this, a competitive situation, right? Uh, we were blown away by the, by the final offers. That's great. And, uh, but uh, Lori, something, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm super passionate. <laughs> I mean, kind of like uh, uh, going through this again, right? Because we were extremely lucky. So then we took these uh, 12 uh, offers to four and then to three. Uh, One of them was a strategic uh, buyer. The two of them, it was incredible private equities, right? That I have very dear to my heart. And then, uh, Lori, because you developed, you bond with these, right? You have an honest relationship with them, right? That it became extremely hard to make a decision, right? Because, I mean, there was no wrong decision, right? Uh, Each one will add enormous value, Uh, on their way, right? Uh, My husband and partner, he didn't even, he supported me also to make the decision, right? So, and uh, yeah, so I went to my advisors, right? I went to my executive coach uh, just to get a little bit of um, advice, right? And uh, in part of my decision-making framework, it's uh, all these are amazing. Uh, private equities, amazing companies, right? Just there is a win, right? But how do I feel that it's gonna be my employees are gonna thrive, right? And uh, I already had a relationship with Roper and Aaron, right? And uh, I mean, Aaron had a female CEO, right? That I really respect and and treasure. And and uh, I think, I mean, there was so much respect and uh, and so much trust that, you know, I knew that I wanted them to be my home.
0: So it wasn't only about the highest bidder.
1: And they weren't, we didn't take the highest.
0: We did. That's super interesting. I've heard that as well. So almost, again, like this mythical thing you hear about. And here we are, that that was your situation. That's fascinating. Yeah. So, the culture of the company, the prior relationship, the fit for your employees, you and your husband decided to probably not stay on, I'm guessing, but you wanted your team to have a sustainable future with this entity. And so it was Adderant Roper.
1: Yes. And, uh, and not only that, right, it's uh, our values were absolutely aligned, Lori, very different from our first experience, right? So when we came into the negotiation, um, uh, Lori, and probably you're familiar because you've done this, you know, I mean, many, many times, right? We were all for a win-win, right? There were no shenanigans, right? There was no hidden, right? Every day we'll come into reviewing documents, right? And everybody was putting their best. Right, so we wanted to succeed. There was no chance in our mind that this deal was not going to go forward. That was not an option. Right, so we kind of like uh, have to kind of like uh, overcome some hurdles. Right, and uh, but kind of like uh, having the desire to really succeed at this transaction, it made it super easy. In kind of like, as the result, we close a deal in 45 days.
0: That's amazing. And around Thanksgiving. Uh, That's just Uh incredible. Highly, highly motivated buyers. And kudos to you and your team for really being ready. And that speaks volumes to the process, because the more ready we are for a transition, the more options we're going to create. And your story 100% illustrates that point. I want to jump to what you're doing today because it fuels your passion and mission in a different direction. And after you sold, you took like a week off right now, I'm kidding. You took some time off, hopefully, to enjoy. Did you do some travel? Uh, well,
1: uh, we were because, I mean, Dani and I were grinding uh, <laughs> yeah. for 20 years, right? And um, uh, yeah, uh, we decided to go to Europe for six months. And uh, we were set to go March tenth of twenty twenty, and the next day it was a lockdown, so we couldn't go. So
0: you uh, had a staycation, so <laughs> we we, don't like
1: the rest of us. I have no job because we already completed the transi- the transition from December to March, right, yeah. with uh, Aaron and, and Robert, right. So I was pretty much uh, in my house, right, with my kids, and uh, and without pretty much anything, anything that I knew and I loved to do, I was not doing any of that. Yeah, that was a tough time. It was, uh, it was uh, super bittersweet, right? Yeah. And, uh, and a little bit of kind of like a how the serendipity of life, right? So um, I became kind of like... Um, someone knew that I was available, right? And they say, well, you're a female founder, you're a minority founder, talk to Gabby, right? She just sold her company, right? And there was another, and uh, all of a sudden I was advising uh, 10, 12 companies, uh, amazing founders, amazing female founders. I started angel investing in them because I believe in in some founders uh, so much. And that led me to uh, be, part of uh, a fund and become an LP of one fund, right? As I was doing the advising, and then through this, I had the opportunity uh, to start my own fund, right? But it was kind of like a non-plan, right? It just happened,
0: you know? Very organic. So people knew they started reaching out. And interesting too, because as I said in your introduction, you bootstrapped your first two companies. You didn't have experience with venture capitalists. They weren't on your board. And now you are a VC. And it's an interesting juxtaposition, right? Because now you're looking to support women in a industry, the field of venture capital, where they're just, the percentages are pretty low, aren't they, for VC investments going to women founders? It's like two percent, or some yeah, really yeah.
1: low number. Less than two percent for female-led um, startup. Yes, it's it, it it's very it's it's very sad. And on the other side, right, uh, on the VC, only uh, less than twelve percent are female making decisions on investments. So there, there there's a long way to go, but uh, and yeah, and that's why. I love so much uh, what I'm doing.
0: So the name of the fund is, is the Fund XX. So there's a little bit of controversy about the name, I understand, but let's talk about that positioning of the fund and how you support women investors. And if we as listeners are, are hearing this and they're thinking about, oh, I know someone that might be a fit for talking with you or connecting with you, maybe give us a sense of the types of investors that the fund looks to support.
1: Yes, and uh, so um, in terms of uh, um, LPs and investors, uh, we are incredibly proud to say that ninety percent of our investors are female, and uh, you know even uh, some very uh, qualified uh, um, you know people that didn't have the chance to be part of a venture fund before. So in a way, we're trying to democratize. Uh, the investment and be part of the VC investors community, right? And uh, and, and again, I think we've done something uh, that, you know, few others have done uh, in Pittsburgh, the Nexat Fund, Yvonne, right? I mean, we we share um, uh, the same uh, philosophy, right? And uh, they were also very successful in having female investors, right? But on the investment side, uh, as we deploy capital, to our founders, um, our um, investment thesis is, that uh, we want to support the next generation of female leaders. So we only invest in companies where the CEO is a, fi- is a female. So that's kind of like a, we decided to draw a line on the sun, right? Because we want to support the leaders. And then uh, we participate in rounds that are between half a million dollar and a million and a half, right? Uh, because we invest in pre seed and seed rounds uh, only. And, uh, and kind of like a lastly, uh, we look at the founders, Lori. Uh, do they have the DNA? Do they have the domain knowledge? Right? Do they have the grit? And I like to say the integrity, right? Uh, to, you know, that, that we want to support. And uh, and in addition to that, right, we want to, we invest, because we all uh, come from technology, Uh, we invest in tech-enabled companies that we believe, right, that can provide the returns that our fund seeks out. Excellent. And is this U.S. only? Uh, For now, it's U.S. only, yes.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Well, that's excellent. And I'm so excited for you, Gabby. You are a wealth of knowledge, a ton of experience. I know there's a lot of things that inspire you and you inspire so many. Is there a favorite quote that you turn to every now and then that to give you inspiration?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, I think it's even kind of like a little bit of a mantra and it's from Aristotle, right? It's like, um, it goes like, uh, we are what we repeatedly do. So they, therefore, excellent, right? is not an act, it's a habit. Right. And uh, I kind of like uh, our culture in our two companies, it was, uh, you know, around excellence and respect for others. And, uh, you know, I believe that we can achieve great right things when we try to put excellence in everything that we do.
0: I love that. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to reach out?
1: LinkedIn. I mean, there are not too many Gabriella stories. Uh, out there, right? So um, I'm 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 very easy to find, and uh, for any um, female founder, right, a uh, minority founder that wants to reach out, right, um, I I I'm, I'm very accessible. So it's just a, don't be afraid to ask. Just go and ask. Okay, and if I can add value, right, and I'm passionate about what the founders are building, chances are that we are gonna connect.
0: I think I have some female founders to send your way. Me too. Please <laughs> I'll be connecting please you. Please. you. Gabby, thank you so much for coming on Succession Stories and sharing your story with us.
1: Thank you for having me. And I enjoy it thoroughly. Thanks.
0: And so to the listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. You can always catch Succession Stories on any of your favorite podcast players or on YouTube. And don't forget to like and subscribe to the show. If you want to maximize the value of your business and plan for future transition, reach out to me for a complimentary assessment at meetlauriebarkman.com. Be sure to tune in next week for more insights from transition to transaction. And until then, here's to your success. My objective is for you to have a lucrative and successful succession. If you want to understand the value of your company today, that's a great place to start. The sooner you understand what creates value and what detracts from it, the more time you'll have to close the gap if there is one. Hundreds of business owners have taken my complimentary business assessment. As a first step, schedule a call with me by visiting meetlauriebarkman.com. That's meetlauriebarkman.com.